super excited to talk today to Gerard, Rob Gerard Robinson, sorry, of the Advanced Studies and Culture Foundation at the University of Virginia. Um, I believe the last time we talked, you were at uh, the AEI, and um, that was at an AEI event. But bring me up to date on where you are working now and a little bit about the Advanced Studies and Culture Foundation. Well, first of all, good to see you again. Nice to uh, see you. The work you do. So I'm still a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm just not there full time. Oh, gotcha. So I still write for AEI. In fact, yesterday I published a piece uh, on my scholar page at AEI about uh, Democrats and charter schools. Uh, so a uh, quick plug there. So I joined the Advanced Studies and Culture Foundation in March of last year. And uh, there's no correlation. The day that I arrived is the day they sent people home. Uh, because of uh, the pandemic. And so while many scholars have worked away uh, from the office, I've had a chance to come here. So, you know, we were founded 26 years ago uh, by Dr. James Hunter, who is a sociologist here at UVA. And he basically said, if we want to understand American society, we have to look at it through the lens of culture. And so he said for him, culture is how you understand people in their totality. Uh, it's just not how we speak, it's not how we look. We think about that as culture but it's really the institutions and what role they have played in shaping American society. So I joined as vice president for education and get a chance to take 26 years worth of research and translate it to make it applicable to people who are in schools, uh, governors, think tank leaders and others. So glad to be here. Super interesting. You know your way around public education pretty well. You were superintendent for the state of Virginia for a while, right? Minimally, I mean, you've been in this space forever. I just want to ask you, how do you feel about public education right now? Well, I'm still. I mean, like uh, right now, today. I mean, I'm a little troubled, so I just I'm curious. You know, how are you how are you feeling about it? So I'm still uh, supportive and excited about the possibilities of public education. Where I have some heartache is the fact that with the billions of dollars uh, that were invested. Uh, from CARES money uh, going back to March and through December and to now, that so many of my friends who have their children in public schools said, wait a minute, my school isn't open, but St. Catherine, the Episcopal school, the Jewish school, the Muslim school, they're open and they receive less funding, uh, I'm assuming, than we do. And so for the first time, it made a number of people I know who haven't been fans of school choice, either mm -hmm. charter, ESAs, vouchers, whatever. They just weren't fans. But all of a sudden, I was getting phone calls. Friends of mine were getting phone calls saying, wait a minute, what can we do to talk about charters at minimum since we're in the public school sector? I said, very interesting. I said, now, why are you interested? And I laughed with tongue in cheek because I know why. It's really easy to debate the merits of school choice or parental choice when your children aren't the ones impacted. But when they're impacted, they move from the object of the conversation to the subject. And when your kids become the subject, all of a sudden, it's real. So um, in Virginia, we were the second state to close our public school system. A commission was put together uh, and they moved forward some good things. Some things made sense, some things left challenges and bad taste in people's mouth. Uh, big debates in uh, Loudoun County and, and, and Fairfax yeah. County for a number of issues. But uh, I remain hopeful in part because the consumers, being the families and the taxpayers, even with children who are no longer in school, they're now asking really different questions today than 365 days ago. So for that, I remain hopeful. I think that's right. And you wrote a piece recently, I think it was in USA Today, about the fact that we need to know what our kids are learning in school, basically, right? Because I think that was, I mean, I don't know how we got here. I think 
two years ago, we were kind of humming along. I don't know if we were humming, but everyone seemed to, you know, most people were okay. And the people who weren't okay were in the worst schools and couldn't get out. But like you said, people in the middle to beyond upper middle class didn't worry that much, you know, because it was somebody else's problem. And they felt like their kids were doing all right. And they're probably going to get on to college. And then all of a sudden, you know, the wheels fell off and people were uh, looking at what their kids were. And I'm with you. I talked to plenty of people who bought very expensive homes in this particular school district and were very unhappy that they were virtual and not in person. And then some who just pulled their kids out in homeschool, just like, forget it. You know what I mean? Which I understand that too. Um, but, you know, we're kind of going along and all of a sudden, like we're all looking in under the hood at public education and parents are like, what, you know, this isn't exactly what I thought it was. And I thought your piece was really interesting. I I saw a similar one by Paul Hill, which is like, we need to do a better job here at what we're calling public education and, and you know, how parents could be more involved because they have been so closely involved. And, and now parents are really, really interested in what their kids are learning. You hit upon several good points. You know, one of them, for example, is the idea of, well, what do people think about their own school? And so if you look at polling data from Education Next, um, from Phi Delta Kappen, and from other sources, when polled, families say, oh, my school is great. Uh, what do you think about other schools? Oh, they're horrible. And so you think your school is great. And then as you said, people have invested their homes in uh, money in expensive homes mm -hmm. because they have access to great public schools. And that's in fact, what we call parental choice. You buy into it. Mm -hmm. And so when all of a sudden your school is opening, you're asking three questions you really didn't ask before. How much per pupil funding is going to the school? How much of that funding money is funding teachers? And how much of that money, in fact, is making its way into the classroom? Because mm -hmm. when we talk schools, we talk revenue. Now parents are talking about expenditures. You talked about the importance of getting under the hood of schools. And you know we have 74 million school-aged children throughout the United States. The idea that the majority of them were out of school for more than eight months was just unheard of. Yeah. And they're not having to ask really tough questions uh, at school board meetings, but also governors. You know, uh, we have a governor's race here in Virginia, but you're going to have over 30 gubernatorial races following that. And you best you can rest assured governors are not going to have to answer questions about school finance, school so. buildings and public health. I think the other interesting thing about this, I bet you 95 percent of the people in a county or a city could not name the health director for the city or the county. Well, many of them know that person now uh, mm -hmm. because that person is now involved in conversation. So in some interesting ways, people are learning more about government at writ large. What role would the health department play? Yeah. What role would the business community play? Because businesses all of a sudden had family members who were working from home mm -hmm. whose kids weren't going to school. So businesses are saying, wait a minute, what can we do from a philanthropic standpoint to you know, make this work? So I just think it's a really chaotic time where chaos can actually help us think about making sense of public schooling. School boards too. You know, I think a lot of parents didn't realize that school boards meet, no one goes to the meetings and they pick a math curriculum or, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think they realize that that's kind of the way it works. No one votes in school board elections and you get these school boards and they're making pretty big decisions. And now people are getting more upset about that one. Um, I've seen some preliminary SOL scores, which is the Virginia, um, assessment program and Missouri just released our preliminary scores from last year and they're 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 terrible 35 percent of students in Missouri are proficient in math Virginia does better than that 35 percent now proficient in math and the kids who were learning virtually 
55% scored below basic in math, which means it just basically did not work, right? So now what do we do? What do we do? If you were still superintendent of schools in Virginia, what, what do you do here? You've got the money, right? Well, we've got money. Uh, Eric Kanyushek, who is an economist uh, at the Hoover Institute, uh, he and I were in a conversation. He said, there's enough money right now invested in schools and for the next four years, if they didn't raise an additional dime, uh, they would have enough to move forward based upon former estimates of revenue and expenses. So here are a few things that I would do. Uh, our uh, SOL scores before the pandemic told a tale of three Virginias. So when you look at Virginia as a state based upon data from Education Next, we're ranked uh, top 10 in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, our SOL standards, in fact, preceded conversations about Common Core, which is one reason why when I was Secretary yep. of Education, I recommended to Governor Bob McDonald and received support from him and bipartisan support across the board not to take on Common Core. Not that we were against it per se, it's just that Virginia standards uh, were moving forward and we want to go ahead and try that out. And I think uh, that was the right decision in 2010 and it makes sense in 2021. Right. Um, when you look at our SLO scores, students who are in great schools, guess what? Their scores are great. When we look at many low-income students across the board, white, black, Hispanic, Native yep. American, Asian, some of their proficiency levels aren't anything to be excited about. That was pre-pandemic. The third Virginia is rural Virginia. And we forget about the fact that we have a very large rural population. Right. Although we're ranked as one of the smartest states in the country for adults based upon the age of people 25 and older who at least have a bachelor's degree, mm -hmm. you know, we're looking at 70 plus percent. But most of those people are in Northern Virginia. That's right. What about the Virginia horseshoe? And that will get through the Appalachian Trail. It goes to the Southern part of the state, the Eastern, the Western. If yeah. that was a state, we're now in line with South Carolina and other states. High poverty, issues with broadband, issues with connectivity. But even before the pandemic, the lawmakers in the state would tell us we need support. So there are three things that I would do is number one, make sure the CARES money that arrived to the Department of Education, we actually invested it in places that we know not only need it, but align it with practices that work. Uh, second thing I would, have, uh, would do is to have a town hall meeting regionally, because what takes place in Northern Virginia is very different than Southside Virginia. And to have a conversation with the superintendents and school boards to say, look, we're here from the government, we actually do want to help. Mm -hmm. uh, but also to say, you know, tell us what your challenges are. And then the third thing to do is have with each governor also had additional funds that he or she could use on a competitive basis. That's right. Is actually have competitive funds to say, tell you what, local school families or groups of families, what do you want to do? Let's have a competition, 10,000, 20,000, 25,000, and invest to see what you can do, because I think we can learn something from families, because in desperation often comes disruption. Yeah, they're DIYing their kids' education. A couple of states have used that money, which is the acronym is GEER, Government Education yep. ER. Don't know the rest of it. But anyways, flexible funding. And a couple of states mm -hmm. have used that to either create or expand uh, scholarship accounts, like education scholarship accounts. Missouri just passed their first one. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of states in the past year, seven, I think, like that was a it was a popular thing when the schools were closed. Um, it's not yet funded. I would love to see our governor use it to fund that program, but I don't think we're going to have the will to do that. You know, a lot of the, we are very rural, like all uh, two thirds of our schools are rural. Mm -hmm. And there's this thinking for some reason, the prevailing thought is that the schools are fine. I went there, my mom went there, 
They basically look the same. They're doing fine. And yet we know, I know that like in Missouri, about a third of our schools don't even offer calculus. They can't. They're too Mm -hmm. rural. They're too small. Mm -hmm. And these kids are graduating. They're not ready for college or career. And it's a huge problem. And I think taking a couple of years off is just like exacerbating the problem. I mean, these kids that got high school diplomas, if they got them last year, I don't know what they're, what they mean. You know, um, I, I did see that Virginia is going to test kids twice a year, like, or three times, I think fall, mid year and spring to see how they're doing. I like that use of data. I wish mm-hmm. Missouri would do more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. It's, it's, you can't paint with a broad brush here. One thing that our state department of education did is they released test scores and they weirdly um, put math, reading, and science all into one, but the rates of proficiency, when you lump those all together, for some reason, they haven't released anything disaggregated. You lump those all together. For Black students, the proficiency before the pandemic was 21%, which is criminal. It's mm-hmm. now 15%. Mm-hmm. So 85% not. And the low-income students, similar story. I mean, these are these are groups who couldn't afford to lose ground and they've really lost ground. And I think what I hear from parents anecdotally is they want really intensive one-on-one tutoring after school, summer, like, you know, really want their kids to catch up. I don't know. But, it, you know, I think that's another option and, and is putting money in the hands of parents and families could, could also be a really smart thing to do going forward. One of the things uh, I didn't really appreciate uh, that Congress decided to do for the second round of CARES money is to basically tell uh, governors and states that you couldn't use X amount to support private education. Um, That wasn't in the first one, it was in the second one. And part of the logic is we don't wanna take money from public schools. Well, first of all, it's it's money funded by taxpayers. There are plenty of public school parents who, in fact, took their children out of public schools and put them in private schools because they were open. So if anything else, the money should have followed the child. That's part one. Part two, you did not put the same restriction at the higher education level, where example, where, for example, you have Pell Grants, yeah. which are means tested based upon income. And you didn't say that someone going to Georgetown with a Pell Grant, well, guess what? We're going to lower your Pell Grant or you can't use it if you're going to transfer but we do those kind of things for people at the K-12 level. You know, I'm familiar with some of the dynamics uh, uh, in your state, uh, both Missouri and Kansas City. Missouri and St. Louis in particular, I should say, when I was a president of Black Alliance for Educational Options, uh, we had a chapter there. Uh, Ms. Gerke, uh, Ms. Uh, Bertha, who's uh, deceased now, she played a strong role in working with families, uh, so much so that one time a thousand parents left St. Louis public schools to actually do some work uh, with the other alternative sectors, in part charter in this aspect, because family said it made a difference. Mm-hmm. I also remember us putting together a, a short uh, documentary where we went around the city of St. Louis to identify all these unabandoned um, public school buildings yeah. where there were drug activities and other activities that were not taking place, that were taking place. It was a public institution. Why couldn't we use that to support a charter school that wanted to open? Well, that led to the state making some changes. St. Louis has had a number of challenges, everything from desegregation uh, to funding. But when you say 20% in 2021, and you don't think that that's a problem, like your word criminal, because when you look at the school to prison pipeline, it's not as if the number of people who are going into prison as adults who did not finish high school or can't read above the eighth grade level, it's not as if they had those challenges at 18. 
We right. saw that in middle school. That's right. And we've got hardworking teachers who I don't want to do the right thing. So it's not about that, but come on. That's right. In 2021, you had the same challenges in 1981 and the same challenges in 1961. That's a systemic problem. Don't put yep. that on the uh, on the backs of black people. Put that on the backs of the, backs of the system. That's right. That's absolutely right. We've been working on achievement gaps. Well, 65 is when the federal law passed to address achievement gaps. That's 50 years ago. That's more than 50 years. That's incredible. But um, we're not getting anywhere, so we're not doing the right things. I think we need to try something different, which is one reason I fully support school choice. Mm -hmm. I think those families, you know, we were at Bayo, Black Alliance for Educational Option. Those families, I did a podcast with Virginia Ford and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, who was like instrumental in making that happen in DC. And it's like, mm -hmm. these families know in St. Louis that their kids are going to terrible schools. They right. know that and they want something different and they will work hard. But um, now in St. Louis, they're gonna, they passed a sort of a token. It doesn't really mean anything, a moratorium on charter schools. Like the school board is just trying to state that they're against them, but parents, are flocking to them, right? We have got some very high-performing charter schools. About a third of families now attend charter schools, but I would really like to open it up in addition to scholarship programs. We had mm -hmm. three Catholic high schools and Catholic schools in St. Louis close the year before the pandemic. Let's get them back open, you know what I mean? Like, let's let these kids have an opportunity to go to school like that. But it takes big, bold ideas. I hope that the pandemic you know, is making people more comfortable with big, bold ideas because you can see the level of the problem. And the, I think I'm afraid inequality is just going to get so much worse now. Well, give you an example. Let me give you an example of a bold idea in West Virginia. Now, this is a state where we couldn't move with charters, couldn't move with private school choice. Well, this session, they decide to move forward in a big way. 24 months ago, people would have lacked the idea that West Virginia would have moved that way. Well, guess what? Sometimes through desperation will come disruption. Um, there are people, I'm sure, in not only St. Louis and Kansas City, but the rural counties who are asking the same questions, who are going to listen to this and say, wait a minute, if other states are doing it, who are similarly situated, who have the same challenges between um, the state capital and where the rest of us live, That's right. who are concerned about, you know, health, who are concerned about obesity challenges, who are concerned about making schools better. Families, if we were looking, going back to the start of the uh, parental choice program in Milwaukee, mm -hmm. uh, which started, you know, 30 years ago, yeah. if that was the start, just imagine their families right now in Missouri who are having the same conversation. They're looking to the Show Me Institute That's right. and say, hey, show me. But the great thing is there's great things you're doing, but there are other states to look to and that's they right. can show you as well. And just, you know, I still want to be a thought partner, uh, which is why I'm joining you and have always been supportive. That's great. I appreciate it. I do want to talk for a minute because I know you know a lot about this, but the Pell Grant. Mm -hmm. um, Pell Grant, I think people maybe have an idea what it, of what it is, but you, I want to go back to the point you just made because I think it's an important one, which is that it's a federal program for low-income students to help them go to college. And when you receive a Pell Grant, I'm probably um, not being completely correct here, but essentially I've done the FAFSA form for my kids. You say what school you're going to, if you qualify for Pell, that Pell money ends up in your student account. They don't really look, is it public? Is it private? Is it religious? Is it, uh, you know, in fact, it could be uh, cosmetology school. I mean, there's a lot of what are called Title IV participating 
post-secondary institutions, but the government doesn't have an opinion on where you take your Pell as long as that institution meets some minimal requirements. Why? That's been a pretty effective program, right? And I know you've talked about expanding it to cover more population. So I'd like you to tell me a little bit more about that, but why can't we do that at K-12? I, I don't understand. In 1965, when uh, President Johnson signed the Higher Education Act uh, at his alma mater, uh, Southwest Texas State. In fact, he's the only American president to have earned a degree in education. He said, I'm signing this bill because I want to make education uh, accessible and affordable to more people. And so from 1965 onward, it remained a means-tested uh, program, meaning that you have to have a certain income. And if your income is below that, you qualify for a Pell Grant. We'll make the math easy and say roughly it's $6,500. Now that's not enough to cover tuition at uh, University of Missouri or at Georgetown or Howard University, my alma mater. But guess what? All three of those schools, they have Pell Grant students. In fact, some schools have 25% of their students or Pell Grant students. Well, if you were at the University of Missouri, uh, Kansas City, and then you moved to St. Louis, you still qualified for the Pell Grant. And so it is what we call portable money. At the K-12 level, very different conversation. From a legal standpoint, they've talked about constitutionally mandated education, which is an education you must provide to people, some states up to the age of 21, uh, that's free appropriate education. We're saying because they're still young and vulnerable, that somehow giving them money to transfer should be treated differently. Now, there's also the fact that you have state, local, federal money, you have 50 states with different formulas, for, uh, formulas that can make it tough. Well, we've had a lot of tough things that we do with taxes and we make it happen. Um, but we haven't made the case. This is one reason education savings accounts uh, have moved forward in certain ways, but we do it for Pell Grants. Um, we do it for other programs. For example, let's talk about welfare. If you have an ETB card and you go to a grocery store, they don't tell you what grocery store you can't go to. You okay. use that and you will purchase it there. You can also use other government benefits. Let's talk about the largest voucher program in the country. It's called Section 8 Housing. Mm -hmm. It's a federal housing program. It's been around for decades. Part of the program to try to do, um, minimize um, uh, gaps. And so you have families who move into uh, apartments. Some of them, guess what, are run by private companies or managed by private companies. And they take that money and use it to live in different housing. So we found ways to transfer funds for poor people. We do it for health, we do it for food, but we can't see them do it for education. It's not because we don't have the technology. It's because, I, I won't even say it's not because we don't have the political will. We just haven't been willing to take on the fight with the entrenched interests mm -hmm. uh, to make it happen. But I think with the pandemic, we're gonna have people who weren't involved in the conversation now coming to the table and say, let's roll up our sleeves and really have a good conversation. That's right. I mean, I would like to see it happen just with the federal money, the Title I money for, it's supposed to be for low-income kids. I don't know how much you know about the Title I formula. It's a nightmare. And a lot of times kids who would qualify don't really get anything. Kids who don't qualify do. It's really, it's like the tax code. It's bad. Uh, too many cooks <laughs> have gotten into the kitchen there, but I would like to just be able to, uh, you know, have a low-income child who, who lives below the poverty line, take that Title I funding of $1,000 or $1,500 to the school of their choice, mm -hmm. give them a little buying power, which, you know, would make uh, schools work harder to get those students and treat them well and keep them, which I think would be a, a really good thing too. But um, so I ask you this in the beginning, 
you feel good going forward? Do you think we're heading in a good direction? Are you are you worried? I'm excited about the fact that families are talking, so that keeps me excited. Uh, I'm lukewarm in terms of how the money will be spent. Uh, that all the gears, not gears, but cares money that's made it to the states. Um, you know, I listen to people from different sides, both left and right, on what they're thinking, and both sides are somewhat cautious about where the money is going to go. And so I'm not too, let's just say I'm lukewarm on that. I'm going to wait to see. Uh, yeah. Where I have my most concern is the fact that we have to accept that some students are going to be behind at least a year yeah. um, on the academic side because they had a lot of trauma and other things taking place in the house right. uh, that we often don't discuss. So I'm a uh, scale of one to 10, I'm probably at a five. Uh, I'm gonna say, show me, uh, so we're talking <laughs> show me Institute, uh, show me the money and where it was allocated. Uh, show me what you've done to give parents true voice. Uh, show me superintendent and school board, uh, some of the policies you have in place uh, to make work and it won't be perfect. Uh, and then show me Department of Education, how you've been a good partner. In, I think that's uh, great. Uh, you mentioned Eric Hanushek from Hoover. He's done a, a, an analysis of this, how this could impact children for their whole lives, this mm -hmm. pandemic. And in mm -hmm. the last pandemic in 1918, um, a lot of school-aged children didn't recover in terms of educational attainment or median earnings or just life, life outcomes. And I do hope that we since the government has decided to send all this money out, the federal government, I hope we use it very wisely because we don't want to see that happen again. And, you know, and I'm with you. I've, I've always, I've, for the last two years, been very worried about small children home alone, about people, you know, the stress of their household, making school basically impossible. And we know in Missouri, we're missing three and a half percent of kids, especially kindergartners, wow. and little ones. We don't know where they are. So you know, I, I'm concerned, but I'm, I, I'm with you on the five. You got some, I got some nines, I got some threes, I guess, but, um, mm -hmm. well, it's great to talk to you, Gerard. I really appreciate you taking the time. You've always got great thoughts and, um, I hope you'll stay in touch. I will. And let me know how I can be a thought partner to your great work. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.